0: Wise men follow him. They rose again. Wise men follow him. Thank God for the renegades and the lives they lead. Oh, the their time. without the hell Lord knows where we well. Good morning, Northern Maine. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show, the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine, broadcast in Maine today on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook, in Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer, Bangor, Maine. You're hearing this on Saturday. March 26, 2016, it's sunny with a high near 43, east wind 6 to 10, becoming north in the afternoon. Saturday night, partly cloudy, low around 24, northeast wind. Sunday, partly sunny with a high near 47, calm wind becoming south around 6 miles an hour in the afternoon. Sunday night, chance of snow after 2 a.m., Mostly cloudy and low around 31. South wind around 6 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation, 30%. And Monday, chance of rain and snow before 8 a.m., then a chance of rain. Cloudy with a high near 43. South wind around 6 miles an hour. Chance of precipitation, 50% Monday. This is being recorded, pre-recorded on on Friday. And at 9 a.m. Friday, we got a drizzly freezing rain. It is slippery. I haven't seen a car go by in some time. So, if the after effects will still be on the back roads on Saturday when you're hearing this, be careful. People are slipping and sliding off the road all over the place on Friday. Price of gas is $1.84 a gallon in Bangor, it's up 16 cents. And price of gas is 220 in Madawaska, up 14 cents. That's a pretty big jump in one one week, and uh, it's still below a below two dollars, which is a good thing. I mean it's well below where it was last year. It's trending upward. Diesel is $1.99 in Arundel, same as last week, and it's 279 in Levant, up 25 cents. That's quite an uptick. The reason for the uptick, uh, twofold. For gas, it's there, a lot of refineries are down, swinging over from winter winter gas to summer gas. Now, winter gas is better gas. It's got more bounce to the ounce, more energy. It uh, has more gasoline and more additives for easier starting in cold weather. And it's still... Uh, up to 10% of the contaminant ethanol which doesn't store well and is very harmful to small engines, especially two-strokes. Diesel also swings to a summer formulation and it is also easier to start in the wintertime. Uh, Diesels can be kind of stubborn because there's no spark plug. You have glow plugs, you turn the key and Watch the watch until a yellow light goes out, and then you can start it. That'll be anywhere from one second to <clears throat> ten or fifteen seconds. I always let the glow plugs go a little while on the Kubota because it's easier starting. You don't want to be cranking and cranking and cranking, and that since you'll fire on one cylinder and blow out clouds of smoke, and then the other one, and more cylinders, and fills a whole garage with smoke. <laughs> But if you start it, give the glow clubs, excuse me, glow plugs a long enough time to heat up, it take right off like summertime. We've got an apple seed coming up April 16th and 17th in Monmouth, Maine. That is the weekend closest to April 19th. We always have an apple seed all over the country. There'll be apple seeds on that weekend. We always try for that weekend closest to the anniversary date of April 19th, 1775, when the colonials sent the redcoats back to Boston empty-handed. It's an awesome story, and we have a we have a uh, we have the records of what they did. They were written down for us with quill pens. And I was in a discussion with somebody a while back, and I wrote something down and i I think I saved it right handy here not as handy as I thought, but it was what what our forefathers wrote about about their service and our rights because we have some unprecedented attacks. There it is. We have some unprecedented attacks on the Second Amendment. Now, we've got some wishy-washy politicians on both sides of the aisle who say, I support the Second Amendment, but stop right there. No buts. If you don't support the Second Amendment or partially support the Second Amendment, you don't support it. There are no buts. You have a right to keep and bear arms. Keep means have. You can borrow it from somebody. You can own it. You can inherit it from your grandfather and it sits in the closet. But you have a right to keep that just as long as you want and to sell it, give it away as a gift, or leave it in your estate for your grandson. That's keeping it. It's part of our heritage, we want to keep our heritage now bear bear means carry it means you can carry it around, walk down the street with it and have it in your vehicle and there are more and more restrictions you know during the wild west the uh There was very really not a lot of law and order, and sheriffs began to clamp down and say, "Look, you can't you can't be carrying your pistol in the holster in the bar room. You can't be drinking and carrying the pistol. It's dangerous to the people upstairs when you fire it up in the air and the bullets go flying up through the floorboards and the splitters go flying. Just, you just can't be doing that. So I mean that's common sense." But gradually, there have been more and more restrictions on our rights to bear arms. Back in the 30s, when the Chicago mobsters were were uh, selling booze illegally, we had a. They made a mistake in our country, and they tried to prohibit alcohol: no booze, no beer, no whiskey, no wine, just no alcohol. And there was a bunch of women, left wing women, who who uh wanted to just eliminate alcohol. Hubby would stop on the way home from work and spend some of the some of his wages on beer and come home with less than he'd earned. Wives didn't like that. Moms didn't want their kids drinking, which is a good idea. So they had a gal named Carrie Nation who went around with an axe, and she'd bust up saloons. I mean, she'd go into the saloon and start swinging that axe and smashing bottles and chopping up the bar, and people would flee out the side doors and the back door just to get away from her. Nobody shot Carrie Nason. So that happened back in the 30s. I don't remember that. That's before my time, but I read about it. And then people wanted to have beer and wine, And whiskey, rum, and uh, other people went around lecturing against demon rum. Well, you know, if you choose to drink too much, rum can take over your life. Uh, That's not a good thing for the individual. It's not a good thing for your fellow drivers on the road. And it's not a good thing for the family. People are responsible for what they do, no matter what they ingest. You're responsible for yourself. So, this happened back in the 30s and the federal government realized that, you know what? We've got revenue all over the South trying to keep these farmers from making corn liquor because you take a few bushels of corn and you produce alcohol with it and the alcohol is worth more than the several bush- bushels of corn which could be used for chicken feed and they uh they can it's easier to transport you can make more money from several bushels of corn in the form of alcohol than you do uh, you know feed it to the chickens and by the way, after you cooked the mash and drained it off and distilled it, the alcohol, you can still feed the mash to the chickens. <coughs> excuse me so. All that happened back in the 30s. And we had a whiskey rebellion in Pennsylvania. After the Revolutionary War, you know, they tried to clamp down on on uh, uh, whiskey, and they were taxing it. And the people who produced the whiskey didn't want to pay the tax. So they revolted, and they when the revenueers came out in Pennsylvania, they... Whiskey uh, producers chased them back to Philadelphia. (laughs) So people got stirred up about it. Some people want their alcohol. They don't want to be taxed on it. Almost any product, not just alcohol. But as they were writing the Constitution, uh, in the beginning, they did not uh, have the Bill of Rights in there. The Bill of Rights uh are were understood at the time to be unquestionable. And they said, you know what? The federal government might get flexing its muscles and decide they've got more power than they really do and we've got to put a put a halter on this. We've got to stop it. We uh we just can't have these people uh, Losing their rights because some bureaucrat wants to exercise his imagined authority well that's that's what happened they They had the Bill of Rights come up, and during that debate, there was a guy named Tench Cox from Virginia, and Philadelphia was pretty straight laced, and Pennsylvania was pretty straight laced. And they said, you know, we've got to we've got to have more powerful government. We've got to restrict the citizens as to what they can do. So, Tens Cox wrote down this statement, and I've ref- I've said I've spoken the statement before, but I did some research, and I'm gonna. It's a little longer, not it doesn't take very long, but Tens wrote. The power of the sword, say the minority of Pennsylvania, is in the hands of Congress. My friends and countrymen, it is not so. For the powers of the sword are in the hands of the yeomanry of America, from 16 to 60. The militia of those free commonwealths, entitled and accustomed to their arms, when compared with any possible army, must be tremendous and irresistible. Who are the militia? Are they not ourselves? Is it feared, then, that we shall turn our arms against each man against his own bosom? Congress shall have no power to disarm the militia. Their swords at every other terrible implement of the soldier are the birthright of an American. What clause in the state or federal constitution hath given away that important right? The unlimited power of the sword is not in the hands of either the federal or state governments, but where I trust in God it will ever remain, in the hands of the people. Now, there's no quibbling about that. That is straight up, and that is what our forefathers thought and wrote. And they summarized that in the Second Amendment. It says we have the right to keep and bear arms. In the state of Maine, we go just a little bit further and it says that right shall not be questioned. It's in our Constitution. Now, the billionaire, Michael Bloomberg, wants to take away private firearms in our country. He wants to abolish the Second Amendment. And he figures he can do it with a rule and disregard the Constitution. Well, guess what? Washington, D.C. has got thousands of pages of rules that diminish and tear up the Constitution, essentially. So he spent thousands and thousands of dollars in the state of Maine paying people for to collect signatures opposing the right to bear arms. Well, that's unconstitutional in the state of Maine. But he's got billions of dollars, and he he did that. They submitted a sufficient number of signatures to get it on the ballot for this year in November. Now, they submitted an, ex- an excessive number of signatures, but the question is, are those signatures legal? Are they valid? Well, they're going down through the list and checking, which they did with the the bong boys. We had a couple of people come to Maine uh, a few years ago and promote the use of marijuana in Maine. And they keep trying it and trying it. They went out there and they paid five bucks a signature for thousands of signatures this year. And they had competing... measures that were going to be on the ballot. And the signatures were not valid. They had like 30,000 signatures that they paid five bucks each for. So that's $150,000 that they paid for these signatures with guess what? They weren't valid. These people signed, signed the sheet, swore that they were registered voters in a particular town, and they were not. They were not. They either signed for the wrong, the wrong town, or they simply were not registered to vote. So the bong boys paid the five bucks a signature, $150,000. Now, they didn't have it. Somebody paid for that $150,000. Big bucks. You know, $150,000 is real money in the state of Maine. Not so much in New York, but it is real money in the state of Maine. So, they, their signatures were thrown out. Before I go, go on totally off the subject here, let me get back to what Tenchcox wrote. The powers of the sword are in the hands of the yeomanry of America from 16 to 60. Yeomanry. Word we don't see very often anymore, a yeoman is a is a fine upstanding citizen of good repute, and those are the folks who gathered together on april nineteenth seventeen seventy five between the hours of midnight on the eighteenth to sunset on the nineteenth and in april the day is a little over 12 hours. The 12-hour day was was March 21st. So on April 19th, it was four weeks later. The day was just a little bit longer. But the point is that between, in those hours, that 18 hours from midnight on the 18th to sunset on the 19th, 14,000 men-at-arms were marching toward Concord and Boston 14,000 men nobody got drafted every single one was a volunteer and they stood up for freedom they weren't standing up for democracy they were standing up for freedom and human rights and the rights of their own towns to govern themselves general thomas gage Wanted to abolish town meetings because he didn't like. He said the people were getting too democratic, which is like democracy, and they didn't like democracy. Well, our forefathers didn't like democracy very much either. And the word democracy does not appear in the Declaration of Independence or in the Constitution. We are a republic of the several states who have joined together in an effort to to be a nation. And on the front of of an Appleseed instructor's shirt, says, 13 colonies, one people, one nation, one day. Got a nice email last week from a gentleman in New Brunswick who is a fan of the show. He likes the show and he also likes the idea of Project Appleseed. He's got a group that's going to come over to our shoot in Skowhegan, Maine. And they've read up on all the rules so he can bring his firearms with him into the U.S. and bring them home again to Canada. He has the proper documentation and And the four people, four or five people that are coming are certified uh, firearm safety instructors in Canada. So they're coming down to kind of check us out, socialize, sit around a campfire in the evening and uh, talk about human rights. That's what this is all about, human rights. And what people did when they stood up and said no to tyranny. Looking forward to it. Yeomanry. Good, upstanding, honorable citizens gathered together for a common cause, which is to resist tyranny. It happened before. It happened locally. It's happened in the States. It's happened nationally. So, we've got some corruption that has crept into our nation particularly in Congress because there's another old word that used to be used a lot and it's ought to be brought back is scalawags. Sometimes the old time loggers in Maine had to invent particularly impressive names for places and things like Screw Auger Falls over in Gulf, Gulf Hagis. They've got a, a stream that falls down through a bunch of waterfalls, and the stream actually does more than a 180-degree turn. It does a 270-degree turn before turning around and going back down the other way. It's an impressive place. In the spring of the year, it roars. It's called Screw Auger Falls. I've stood there. Today, you can't stand there because it's icy, and you don't want to go down head over heels through Screw Falls. It would ruin the rest of the afternoon, let me tell you. So, <clears throat> and then they got the Slough Gundy heaters <clears throat> in Mattawankeag. Mattawankeag River uh, comes down from Mattawankeag Lake over 100 miles with no factories, no dams. I would dip a cup in Matawankeg River and take a drink any I've done that many times. When I'm fishing, I just carry a, a stainless steel Sierra cup on my hip, tucked under my belt, take it off, dip it in the stream, take a drink. you don't have to lug a bottle with soda pop or something. I'm drinking good, clean water. There's a risk to drinking water out of out of the woods of Maine because it could be a beaver dam upstream and you could pick up a case of giardia which will give you the runs easy to cure it's not going to kill you ruin the rest of the afternoon never got it I've been drinking water out of the streams of Maine for a long long time I just don't drink it downstream of a beaver dam don't do that (laughs) It it could make you sick so yeomanry good, honest, upstanding citizens gathered together on April 19th, 1775 to resist tyranny. We're going to do a presentation in a school, public school. No firearms involved. We're just going to tell the story. It's going to be done in two sessions. We're going to tell the first half and we're going to tell the second half. The students are going to learn what happened the people and the individuals involved, the choices they make. John Parker was 45 years old. He was a leader of the Lexington militia on Lexington Green. 800 Redcoats were marching west toward Lexington Green, and the sun was coming up behind them. You could see the sun shining on those shiny bayonets. Most casualties that day were afflicted by bayonets not gunfire what they would do was they'd fire a volley and charge the enemy and with build bayonets and more than half the casualties that day were caused by bayonets not gunfire but John Parker was on the green his older brother Jonas was there with him and a total of 39 men because they'd when Paul Revere went out through, he notified them, and as they said it the, back to those days, alarmed the countryside. They spelled it A-L-A-R-U-M. We just dropped the U. We now we call it an alarm, like an alarm clock. Back in those days, it was an alarm, a little more emphasis maybe in the word, and they alarmed the countryside. And Lexington turned out about four o'clock in the morning, and they sent a rider out to the east. two roads that go east out of Lexington. Lexington was a big crossroads town. lots of passed through lots of roads passed through Lexington. And the riders came back and said, "We don't see anybody coming. No, it's all quiet. Said, okay. So John Parker told his men to to disperse, but stand at the ready. Be ready to come back, because they may still be coming. Well, it turns out that they were bringing the British across Boston Harbor into the marshes of Cambridge, which is an alder swamp. These guys got out of the boat and marched up into Cambridge through an alder swamp, wearing wool trousers, square-toed shoes, and wool socks. And they started out the day cold and wet. It went downhill from there for the Redcoats. So they they dispersed on the green. And then around 6 o'clock, when the sun was coming up, Ryder went to the east again and said, They're out there. They're coming. They're out by big rock. They've got less than a mile to go, and they'll be here. So they rang the church bell, drummed it up, and... 39 men, approximately 39 men, were on the green when the Redcoats arrived. Just as the Redcoats were coming on to Lexington Green, two men from Woburn ran onto the green with their muskets and powder horns. They were running home to Woburn to join their militia, and they were down in Sudbury or someplace, or Framingham, uh, on business, and they were running back to their town. And John Parker said to those two men, Will you stand with us? wasn't their fight. They're looking up the road at hundreds of redcoats coming at them. And they made a decision right there on the spot. They said, we will. One of them was killed that morning right on Lexington Green. He's buried with the seven men from Lexington that died that morning. More died later. He would often survive the initial wound and die weeks later. John Parker himself died that August of tuberculosis. He had tuberculosis that day. He was not a well man and he could not yell. You had to listen to hear him speak. It was a wheezy voice. He had the courage to be out there leading the men of Lexington. We tell this story. It takes a while. This is just it took about ten minutes to just tell this portion of it. But those men were representative of the other 17,000 that turned out will you stand with us we will when his friend was shot and killed on Lexington Green the other man ran home to Woburn north of Lexington and alarmed that town and they marched back down toward the the boston road which is today called it's still called battle road today what a what an amazing story and on april 19th we have a memorial volley and we call out the names of the first 13 men that were killed on april 19th the first colonials and they called John Parker, aim, fire. And everybody on the whole fire, the target line, the fire line fires around. Abner Hosmer, fire. And right on down through. 13 rounds for the 13 men and the 13 colonies. Everybody that comes to an apple seed this weekend, not, oh, excuse me, not this weekend, but on April Memorial oh, Day. Uh, April 16th, we'll get a red T-shirt commemorating that day. And it's printed on both sides. And it has some sayings from that time. And on the back are 12 flags that were flown during the Revolutionary War. One of them is the, is the famous Betsy Ross flag with 13 stripes and and 13 stars in a circle. That's the that's the most famous flag. Then there's the flag, the yellow flag that every, everybody has seen bumper stickers on cars today. And it says don't tread on me. And that is because the British didn't have enough soldiers, so they hired a bunch of mercenaries from Germany called Hessians. And I mentioned the Battle of Bennington last time, so I won't mention that again, but the Hessians were all city people who couldn't find a job in Europe, so they they volunteered to be mercenaries and work for the British. And the colonials told the Hessians, you stay in that road, don't you go out into the woods, there's rattlesnakes out in there, and if a rattlesnake bites you, you're going to die three days later, a terrible suffering, painful death, there's nothing you can do about it, you will die. Well, there were timber rattlers back in New England back then. So, down in southern Maine, there's one one last hill where there's rumors that there might still be a timber rattlesnake down there, and the environmentalists take take advantage of that from time to time. But and in New Hampshire, there's a place that's there's on there's an island that, uh, no, excuse me, Quabbin Reservoir in Massachusetts has an island in the Quabbin Reservoir. The environmentalists don't want the fishermen to go set foot on that island. So they say there's timber rattlers on there to keep the fishermen from going ashore and having a shore lunch. And there's lots of good fish in the Quabbin Reservoir. You've got brown trout, rainbow trout, brook trout, big ones. And there's special restrictions as to horsepower. You can't have any Outboard motor there, bigger than a nine and a half horse. So what you do is you take your nine and a half horse Evinrude and you change the carburetor, which makes it a fifteen horse Evinrude. Same motor, just put in a bigger carburetor, and they leave the the cover on it. It shows that it's a nine and a half horse, but it will scoot. It's a direct replacement. You can buy that carburetor, put it on a nine and a half horse, and now it's a fifteen horse. Same motor. A little background information from the northern mainland man. I mentioned corruption and power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. I mentioned last summer almost a year ago, that eight or ten bankers around the world had committed suicide in a ten-day period. These are not people who happen to be employed in the banking industry. These were big shots. Bank managers, fund managers, investment managers. And they got caught and they were behaving in a way that was inappropriate and not favored by the world banks and these guys were either murdered or committed suicide and they jumped off of tall buildings and what not and just recently we've had a huge upset in the petroleum industry in the world it's it's not it's worldwide because when they found out that they could dig up oil from the surface of the ground up in the Athabasca region of Canada found that they could dig up oil heat up the oil in a big tank and the sand would fall out of the oil by gravity because it's it's thinned out and fall to the bottom of the sand, and they could take a screw auger and pass the sand out of there and bring the sand back out and put it back down on the ground right where it came from, but the oil would float, and the oil would, and some of it, of course, being heated up, would would vaporize, because they call it tar sands because it's heavy crude mixed with sand is what it is, almost like asphalt. And They used to squirt tire on the roads in the state of Maine. They have a truck that's all heated up. They grade the road and go over it with a roller, and then squirt tire on it. And that was hot top. They called it. It made the road better. It was not as durable as a proper gravel base with, you know, three or four or five, six inches of asphalt like they have on the interstate. But they tired the roads. And they were better than better than the roads that weren't tarred. Water would run off in the spring, there'd be less problems with with bud time and and uh it was an expedient good way to do it for a while. But now we've got a situation where they've got this Athabasca tar sand oil and that can be refined and it makes really good oil products, and it's very inexpensive to uh, to harvest. Whether you call it, they call it, I don't know if they call it a mine or not, but essentially that's what they're doing, is they're mining this, this tar and processing it to make crude oil to go to the refinery. And that's what went off the railroad tracks up in Quebec. And killed a bunch of people and wiped out the middle of a town because up the top of the hill, they forgot they took a break, and they forgot to set the brake on the train. The train rolled down the hill. And it was a disaster in that town. Now we've got a guy named Aubrey McClendon. And I'm looking at, at Bloomberg Business Week magazine, got it in my hand. And the cover says The Last Days of the Shale King. Aubrey McClendon. 1959 to 2016. This guy got in on the early early part of, of fracking. They discovered if they pumped water down into an oil well under great pressure, it would go out through the cracks in in the shale and separate it, and then they could it would reestablish flow. And they would get natural gas out of there. When the natural gas tapered off, they would get crude oil coming from wells that they thought were nonproductive. And they would just abandon those wells. They found if you pump water down there under great pressure, that they can get oil out of those old dead wells. And you can also get oil out of new wells in that same area if you have... Shale formations, and we've got shale formations in Aroostook County, and I attended a meeting where the guy said, yep, we've done some seismic tests, and there is shale under Aroostook County. There is shale under on the other side of the St. John River in New Brunswick. It's like the old Pittston Refinery in the state of Maine. You know, they were going to put a refinery down in Washington County, which would have provided a lot of jobs. And the environmentalists said, oh, no, you can't you can't do that in Maine. You'll ruin the state of Maine. People will have jobs because what the environmentalists want is for people not to have jobs. Today, there is not one single pulp mill running on the Penobscot River. There used to be 14 of them. Some of which were abandoned years ago. Before World War II, there's a little groundwood mill in town of to Win, on the Penobscot. They'd bring in a spruce, produce wet lop, wet lap, take it down the river to Lincoln Mill. During World War II, the Lincoln Mill produced target paper, four foot wide rolls of paper, and they would print targets on them, and they trained the troops: 100 yards, 200 yards, 300 yards, 400 yards. Just as we do in Project Appleseed today we at those ranges where we can where we can accomplish this, we'll fire at three or four hundred yards now of course, that's not twenty twos that's a high power rifle, but we teach people to take that rifle off the rack, a military rack grade rifle, an ordinary rifle with ordinary sights. And we teach people to be reliably able to hit a 20-inch square at 500 yards. 20-inch square at 500 yards. There's a lot involved in that. The sights, the elevation, the drop of the bullet over 500 yards, the crosswinds, and the steps to firing the shot, how to do this safely. There's a lot involved with it. But back during World War I, we had the Springfield and the Germans had the Mauser. Accurate rifle shooting is what actually determined the victory of the Allied troops in World War I and in World War II. General George Patton said that the M1 Garand rifle was the greatest battle implement ever devised by man. And John Garand invented the M1 Garand, fine rifle, still is. You can buy one from the Department of Civilian Marksmanship. And they'll ship it to your local gun shop. You sign the paper. Yep, I ordered it. It's fine. You take it home. Some people put them into a walnut case with plexiglass or glass front. There's this M1 Garand in the case, never to be removed from the case. That's the intent of the person that buys it because it's a a wonderful historical artifact. Some people buy them to be shooters because you can win matches with an M1. I've done it with an M1. I, I was the first Naval District Firearms Champion back in 1968. That's rifle and pistol both. And we've used them once. And we used the 45, 1911 model, Colt forty five, semi automatic. It's a it's a learnable skill. Anybody can do it. You gotta have the vision. But our vision is corrected by by glasses and you gotta wear shooting glasses anyway on the line. So it's it's a learnable skill. It's a life skill. People should learn how to handle a rifle safely, handle a pistol safely. We don't teach that in our basic course. But they should learn how to handle firearms safely and be accurate with them. It's a life skill like learning how to swim. Everybody should know how to swim. You don't have to be a competition swimmer. You don't have to swim great distances. But you should know how. Because if you go off the road and your car goes in the river, you're going to need to know how to swim in order to survive. These things happen. You read about them all the time. People will roll, take a wrong road at night in a small town and drive right off the boat ramp into the lake. This is not intentional most of the time. Some people take this approach to ending it all, but most of the time... You wind up in the water with your vehicle, it's an accident. Well, Aubrey McClendon, the guy who developed shale, became a very wealthy man in a very short period of time. And he and other people, you know, people that work in that industry, talked back and forth, and they said, geez, you know. You can bust up shale with water and you can get and you can get oil out of these old dead wells. So the people that owned the old dead wells, it was on their property and the the people that had used it abandoned it and then reverted back to the landowner. All of a sudden this guy says, Hey, let's see if we can get some oil out of my well. A whole lot of property owners down in Texas these last few years have been very dry in Texas. We've got people from Texas coming to Maine to buy pasture land. Well, that was a, a brief boob in pasture land in Maine. They don't need to come to Maine to find green grass now. Texas and Oklahoma have huge floods. Arkansas, Louisiana. Due to this, it's not global warming, it's weather. Due to the El Nino or La Nina, whichever it happens to be this time, producing a lot of rain and next year we're going, to have, we're going to be right back to an old fashioned cold winter we're not even out of this one, I'm looking out at the snow right now, but next winter old man winter's going to flex his muscles again so this Aubrey McClendon was a charismatic true American entrepreneur it says here in the magazine but he got a little carried away with all of this. And they had built a beautiful building. Um, it was, uh, I can't read the fine print on the sign. Chesapeake Energy Corporation. That's what it was, Chesapeake Energy Corporation in Oklahoma. Made a lot of money. But it says here that federal antitrust enforcers had looked at the Michigan case, dropped it without public explanation, but their investigation of McClendon had continued. Chesapeake, as it turns out, was cooperating with federal investigators. On March 1 this month, the U.S. Department of Justice's Antitrust Division filed criminal charges alleging that McClendon, and an unnamed company had agreed not to bid against each other on drilling leases in Oklahoma from December 2007 to March 2012. That's, you know, that's pretty near five years of agreeing not to bid against each other. So they didn't run the price up. They were getting this oil from the landowners at less than what the landowners could have gotten. Bloomberg has since reported that the unnamed company was Sand Ridge Energy, which during that time was led by Chesapeake co-founder, Ward, who had left the company in 2006. He made his money and bailed. Greg Dewey, a spokesman for Ward, didn't return the phone messages seeking comment. I would say that Ward might be in the Cayman Islands or someplace right now. McClendon denied doing anything wrong. Anyone who knows me, my business record, and the industry in which I have worked for 35 years knows that I would not be guilty of violating any antitrust laws. I'm proud of my track record in this industry, and I will fight to prove my innocence and to clear my name. Three days later, an indictment was handed down at about 5:30 p.m. Around 8 o'clock the next morning, a business associate received an email from McClendon. The two had run into each other the night before at a local restaurant where McClendon was dining with his daughter. McClendon seemed normal, the person later told Roland, Chesapeake's former CFO, Chief Financial Officer. The email was little more than a good to see you last night message. Not long after that, McClendon slipped his security detail and climbed into his 2013 Chevy Tahoe. He drove north along a lonesome two-lane stretch of Midwest Boulevard toward the Prairie Scrub City edge. Threading a path through thick, bushy trees bordering both sides of the road with no shoulder, McClendon had little maneuver room. He picked up speed traveling way above the posted limit of 50 miles an hour. At about 9, 12 a.m., he slammed into a concrete abutment supporting a highway overpass. Police have yet to determine whether the crash was an accident or suicide. So, questions remain. Did he commit suicide because of his indictment? Uh. Was it an accident? Or did somebody... Sabotage is Tahoe. Don't know. Investigation may say so. They will very likely put it down as suicide. Many of the 43 people closely associated with Hillary Clinton had their deaths marked down as suicide. It got so ridiculous that they had to invent a new word for it. They called it Arkanside. That's a person who was shot twice in the head, laid across railroad tracks in Arkansas, and run over by a train. And the three teenage boys who saw too much at Mena, Arkansas, died in that way. Shot twice in the head, laid on the railroad track, and run over by a train. The coroner ruled it to be a suicide. So they had to call it Arkansas. 'Cause no other place in the world would such a thing be called suicide. We're into some really peculiar really peculiar times. Donald Trump's third wife is a is a really good looking model. And there people, you know, when you run for president of the United States they take a look and and see Who's going to be the first lady? And the gossip magazines particularly enjoy doing this. Lyndon Johnson's wife was called Lady Bird, which is a kind of a southern nickname. Lyndon was a schoolteacher, and Lady Bird was... I don't know what Lady Bird did, but as when he became president, the money started rolling in. And all of a sudden, he had a beautiful ranch in Texas Lady Bird took on a project to beautify the interstate highways in the United States, planting shrubs and flowers all along the highways, making the roads look good, and went to war against the outdoor advertising industry. There are still states you can ride down through, mostly in the south, because they feel a little more strongly about states' rights in the south than they do in New England and in the Midwest. So you go down there and you... You see uh, big billboards for Shonee's, which is a fast food restaurant, like IHOP, International House of Pancakes, and stuff like that. Big, great, big boulevards, billboards. You can see them from half a mile away. They want you to get off the interstate and swing into their restaurant. Outdoor advertising. That industry is dead in New England cost a whole lot of jobs and some people say it improved the it improves the uh the scenery. Personally I don't care whether they put up billboards or not. There's some, some places here, right in front of a scenic vista, uh like up there in Patton. You get up the top of a the hill, there's a great big field, you're looking across from Alcadita and they they shouldn't have a billboard right there. But as a public service, when you're approaching an exit It'd be kind of nice to know if you had places to get gas and oil in a restaurant where you can get a meal, in a motel where you can sleep for the night. Maine is bigger than it looks. Well, I think you ought to be able to put up a sign that says Joe's Motel or whatever. But environmentalists don't want us to do that. Tom X ex- Exchange in London, as I mentioned last week, is in trouble. It's only a matter of time before that whole thing falls apart. Because for every ounce of gold in the ComEx Exchange, there's 600 people that are claiming it. So the first guy walks up to the, the teller's window, if they have such a thing, says, I would like to have my gold today, thank you. And I've got 100 ounces of gold, and I want it in the box right now. And, okay, sir, they give him his 100 100 ounces, and he walks out, gets in his car, and drives down the road, takes his 100 ounces someplace else, puts it in his safe at home, bury it in the garden, wherever he wants to store it he can put it in the safety deposit box, the local credit union. They have big boxes. But if they declare a bank holiday in our nation, or if they reach out and do a bail-in, now, what I've mentioned before about the bailouts, but in Greece and in Cyprus, they had bail-ins. And The bank simply reached out and took half your savings, half your retirement, whatever they call an IRA in Cyprus and Greece. But they reached out and they took half. That's kind of a disappointment for a guy that saved all his life and he's got an IRA with, you know, $28,000 or $250,000 or more. They're trying to abolish the inheritance tax in the state of Maine. Where if you've got you know if you've done well in life and and you've got some assets both in cash and real estate, whether it's a farm or some apartment houses or a corporation, the state wants its piece of the pie when you kick the bucket. Now there are ways to avoid this. I may do a program on it, but you can establish a family trust. So when you die, the family trust continues on and somebody else is named as the head trustee. One of your kids or a committee of your kids or your brother, somebody that knows something that can help to manage this asset. Some people that you don't want to manage your trust. You might wind up with somebody like McClendon in charge of it. But the thing is if you do a little bit of planning, talk to your tax guy. Just anybody. Send somebody in town that is prosperous and and uh ask him for his advice. And he may he he can either tell you that yep, you c you should establish a family trust and this is who you go see to do it. And you go to go local attorney that understands trusts and say, hey, I would like to establish the Jones Family Trust. And say, okay, Mr. Jones. and He'll draw it up as to how you'd like it structured, and you can do this. So when you die, the trust simply rolls over, and somebody else is, is a manager of the trust, but there is no death tax. The Democrats want there to be a death tax in the state of Maine. They figure, boy, you know, this guy has worked hard all his life and he's accumulated some assets. We want a chunk of that. So that we can give people enough in the state of Maine that they can go out there and they can have their tattoos and their beer and their marijuana. Because that's where the EBT cards go. You can have a an iPhone with a little tiny cube attached to it And a guy swipes the EBT card, and you get a credit to your iPhone of $100. That goes directly into your bank. There is no record whatever of what the $100 was spent for. You gave the guy $100 worth of something, and he gave you $100, That it goes into your account. So it works that way they found that two-thirds, well, I shouldn't say that, they found that more than half of the EBT cards that were distributed in Maine were actually cashed in Las Vegas. Now, not all the people flew out to Las Vegas to cash their EBT card. What happens is that midnight, on the first day of the month, all the EBT cards get refilled, so you, you stick your EBT, EBT card in the, cash, in the cash machine at the ATM out in the country or in downtown someplace. You stick it in there, and it shows that you've got $850. There are EBT cards in Maine with $5,000 on them. They just keep adding up. They don't spend them. Well, you stand there, and you got your buddy there, and you sell the EBT card that's worth five hundred dollars for $400 cash and then they package up all these EBT cards in a box and mail them to Las Vegas where they get cashed now the newspaper reported that the EBT card holder went to Las Vegas and cashed it in they don't understand how this works they get shipped out there in bulk. And it goes zing, 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 zing through there and all the cash turns up in in the account and these EBT cards get sold, you know, over time to several people as they travel across the country. But you can stick it into an ATM machine anyway and see what it's worth. But main people settling for something less than what it's worth. Kind of boggles the mind. I mentioned spouses. You can look on the internet and do a uh, do an internet search for for uh, Don, Donald Trump's wife, and she had quite a modeling career before she became Mrs. Trump number three. And you look at Ted Cruz's wife; she's a nice-looking middle-aged lady. And she, look up her background, she's been in the banking industry for years and years. So she's a banker. People find fault with both of those things. They find fault with the fact that people who work as a model, and they find fault with people that work in the banking industry. People will find fault with anything. It's up to us to make up our own minds. But if you want to do some research, it's not hard to do, with Google or Bing or Dogpile or any of the other search engines. Dogpile still works, by the way. And you get some stuff that doesn't pop up on Google because Google doesn't approve of it. Okay. Wake up my computer here. and Roll up to the top. And this has been the Northern Mainland Man Show. On the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine, broadcast in Maine on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer and Bangor, Maine. Be careful out there. It's freezing rain on Friday, and on Saturday, the back roads that are not sanded are still going to be very slick. This is Easter weekend. Enjoy it with your family. Remember, it's not about Easter bunnies. It's about Christ dying on the cross and being resurrected, giving us the opportunity to be saved. Powerful thing. Just need to take advantage of it. It's there waiting for you. Like the little nursery rhyme said, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. He's learned it before they understood what it meant. But it applies to old Jesus too. Be safe. God bless. Wise men follow him. They rose again. Wise men follow him.